Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. We're in first, uh, rather 2 Kings 18, which is the story of the righteous king Hezekiah, king of Judah, who is probably best known in modern times, at least, as the king that ordered a water tunnel to be built to protect the water supply of Jerusalem from the Assyrians, who had plans to put a siege upon Jerusalem. Now the result of that was an amazing excavation that ran from the top of the city of David southward towards the bottom of the hill it's, it's built upon, carved entirely underground through bedrock. This 600-yard-long tunnel diverted the water emitting from the Gihon Spring, that was the primary water supply for Jerusalem, from a stream bed that flowed partially outside the city walls it now into this new rock-encased aqueduct that then flowed into a reservoir named the Pool of Siloam. And by the way, most people who walk through a tunnel under the city of David think they are walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. They're not. There are two tunnels under that ancient city. And the one that almost all tourists walk through, the one that I take the tours on when, when, uh, when we go, is called the Old Canaanite Tunnel. And you know why? Because it's nice and dry. <laughs> Hezekiah's tunnel is wet. And has several inches, even a couple of feet sometimes, of water that flows through it depending on the season. Also, I've had folks who have been through that wet tunnel ask me, why don't they see the inscription, um, that famous carved inscription that told of how the, the tunnel was built by means of simultaneous excavation from both ends. And the reason is that when the inscription was first discovered in the 1880s, a Greek man living in Jerusalem cut the inscription out of the rock and he tried to sell it. Sadly, as he was hammering away to remove it, it broke into six pieces. Fortunately, just weeks earlier, an archaeologist had taken a rub of the inscription. You know, just like when as children we place paper over some object and scribble over it or use a crayon or pencil and go over it, it kind of transfers the, the image of the object to the paper. So once the six pieces were all recovered, they could piece it back together rather easily. Well, we left off last time as the king of Assyria's second-in-command, a fellow with the title of Rav Shekeh, was blustering and thundering away at the small crowd of people who had come to hear the conference between Assyria's three representatives and Judah's three representatives. Now this man's arrogance knew no limits. And no doubt he was accurately reflecting the attitude and will of his master, Sennacherib, as he threatened Judah and King Hezekiah with annihilation if they didn't surrender immediately. 
the exaggerated and hyperbolic speech is something that in modern times the world has kind of come to expect of Middle Easterners, especially Arabs. Recall Iraqis, uh, the Iraqis' uh, former uh, dictator Saddam Hussein threatening America with the mother of all wars, remember that? And telling the media that if he were invaded that not a foreign soldier would leave his nation alive and and of course we see Israel's Palestinian border enemies constantly claiming that they would unleash hell upon Israel or or make some other outlandish statement that the Western world can't decide whether to take seriously or not well this is the nature of speech that Rav Shekay was making here in 2nd Kings 18 and it was rather typical for that era but then Rav Shekay makes a monumental blunder. In 2 Kings 18, verse 25, he says this, Do you think I have come up to this place to destroy it without Adonai's approval? Adonai said to me, Attack this land and destroy it. Or, as it was more accurately stated in the original Hebrew, Do you think I have come up to this place to destroy it without Jehovah's approval? Jehovah said to me, attack this land and destroy it. So here we have a pagan stating that the king of Assyria was having personal communication with the God of Israel. And that the God of Israel had instructed him and sided with him and wanted him to destroy the kingdom of Judah. Now, whether this was meant only to scare the Judahites or was just more grand exaggeration, or or because wars between nations uh, were seen in that era as wars between the gods of those nations, or he seriously thought that the God of Israel was on his side, that's kind of open to debate. But the fact that he used the God of Israel's formal name, Yudhei-Vavhei, makes the statement lean heavily towards it having a literal intent. The rabbis of old and modern era ones, have seized upon this rash statement of Rav Shekay, and much commentary has been written about it. Now I'd like to summarize it because it's an important issue for believers in all ages, but especially so in ours, because of a careless claim that too many Christians make in our speech. In a nutshell, throughout the Bible, will find dubious statements from Bible characters who rationalize their actions by claiming to be doing Jehovah's will. But this issue of doing what God patently says not to do in His commandments, and a believer saying that, but in this case, it's because God told him to do it, that's age old. Human beings love to rationalize. A fairly recent Jewish work called the Be'er Moshe, which was authored in the 1950s, that is essentially Torah commentary. Well, it makes the editorial comment that many scriptural cases demonstrate how rationalizations were commonly offered in order to cast what is obviously sin in a positive or a favorable light. And I might add on my own the countless rabbinical contributors to the Talmud have done the same thing in trying to explain away crystal clear divine directives or scriptural narratives that at times paint revered Jewish Bible heroes like King David as infallible 
even in the midst of their committing the worst possible sins. Well, the great Jewish sage Maimonides, the Rambam, says in his regulations concerning idol worship that the earliest idolaters in the scriptures contended that since God created the stars and the moon and the sun as well as all the forces of nature like the wind and storms and even fire that it's only natural, it's only normal that God's people would bow down to those phenomena and pay homage because it's essentially only a sign of respect to the God who created it all. But of course the great Rambam says that such is just rationalization for idol worship which is to please men, not God. In, Be'er, in the Be'er Moshe, its author, Rabbi Moshe Yechiel, concludes that every manner of aberration and sin is justified philosophically. And what is philosophy? Human wisdom. Human intellectual thought. And that the only way that this can be avoided is to study God's Torah. Take it to heart. Obey it. Because it is our fallen nature to do what we want to do. Or what seems intellectually logical or, or pleasurable to us. And then we find the most inventive rationalizations to justify it all. To make modern application to this principle. It has become common and careless speech among Christians to say things like the Lord told me to do thus and so or the Lord told me to tell you thus and so it sounds so very pious and honestly once a person says that who can argue against what it is they've determined to say or to do it's a conversation stopper And either consciously or subconsciously, the one who pronounces such a statement perfectly understands that. And that's usually why they say it. It's the Christian version of playing the race card. Except that now we've moved from political and social ideology to spiritual defamation by using the Lord's name in vain to validate our own thoughts and hopes. My brethren, this is a very serious issue in our times. I've cautioned you over and over again about this very thing. First, the Lord is never going to tell you to do something He's commanded against in His Holy Bible. Second, be very careful about considering yourself a prophet. Like the prophets of old who make predictions or as messengers of God's oracle to be delivered to others. I'm not saying there might not be such prophets in our day, although I've never met one. And a true prophet is never self-appointed or self-anointed. I can't tell you how many links to websites people have sent me how many newsletters others have given to me of purported prophets who either speak in such generalizations that there's no way to know if they're correct or not 
Or alternatively, they'll predict, oh, I don't know, the, the assassination of a world leader, or the annihilation of Israel, or a cataclysmic event to take place on a certain date. And of course, it never happens. But that doesn't seem to deter them from offering their next prophecy. And their followers often don't seem to notice that many of their predictions never happen. God's true prophets don't operate on a batting average. They have a 100% accuracy rate. If you think you're God's prophet, then test it. If you ever tell someone something that you believe is from the Lord and it doesn't work out exactly that way, then you're not God's prophet. And to continue to raise yourself up as one is blasphemy of the worst sort. And you are victimizing those to whom you give these false messages. See, the problem is, when these prophecies don't happen, people often tend to lose faith in God instead of losing faith in the false prophet. Because often they can't make the distinction. And here's the thing. Even a non-believer can commit blasphemy should they foolishly decide to invoke the name of God in what they say or what they do. That is what Rav Shekeh did on behalf of King Sennacherib in 2 Kings 18. So let's reread a portion of 2 Kings 18 and we'll bring it to a conclusion. We're going to read from verses 26 to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 424. I'm going to start at 26 and read to the end. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shevna and Yoach said to Rosh K, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak with us in Hebrew while the people on the wall are listening. But Rosh K answered them, Did my master send me to deliver my message just to your master and yourselves? Didn't he send me to address the men sitting on the wall who, like you, are going to be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine? Then Yavshakeh stood up and speaking loudly in Hebrew said, Hear what the great king, the king of Asher, says. This is what the king says. Don't let his kiao deceive you. He won't be able to save you from the power of the king of Asher. Don't let his kiao make you trust in Adonai by saying, Adonai will surely save us. This city won't be given over to the king of Asher. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Surrender to me. Then every one of you can eat from his vine and fig tree and drink the water in his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land with grain and wine, a land with bread and vineyards, a land with olive trees and honey, so that you can live and not die. So don't listen to Hezekiah. He's only deluding you when he says, Adonai will save us. Has any god of any nation ever saved his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharim, Hena, and Eva? Did they save Samaria from my power? Where is the god of any country that has saved its country from my power, so that Adonai might be able to save Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept still, and they didn't answer him so much as a word. 
for the king's order was, don't answer them. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the household, Shebna, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Saf, the foreign minister, went to Hiskeal with their clothes torn, and they reported to him what Rav Shekeh had said. Now, to my way of thinking, Rav Shekeh's statements in verses 31 and 32 not only completely destroy his earlier argument that he is actually an agent of the God of Israel, but also he reveals that he is but a stooge bringing the message of the anti-God, who is Satan. And the message is this, don't trust in the God of Israel to save you, rather trust in me to deliver you. Give yourself to me. Serve me. I'll give you peace. I'll give you a good living. I'll allow you to stay here for a time on this earth before I move you somewhere else to hell. And like the evil one, the king of Assyria most certainly can do it And to some degree, he can do just exactly what he says he can do. And starting in verse 33, the message to the residents of Judah is, well, it would just be futile and probably fatal to resist the king of Assyria. No other nation's gods were able to save them. And besides, the northern kingdom of Israel worshipped the same god as does Judah. And look what Assyria did to them. And verse 36 once again demonstrates Hezekiah's wisdom. And he gives us a clue that in the midst of all this, he had a plan. Before the Assyrian delegates arrived, he had apparently issued an edict that no one from Judah was to respond to them. Now, not only is it useless to argue with arrogant braggarts, but I can tell you from experience that when you don't give out information or feedback to your opponent or to your enemy, then they'll usually think the worst. It's amazing how much of an impact a non-response can have. Because the person that wants or needs a response from you usually has to consider the worst case scenario for themselves if they don't get one. Equally so, that is why when something does happen, it's important for a leader to give out information to his people as soon as possible. Otherwise, folks are going to start filling in the blanks for themselves. Imagining all sorts of things. And most of the time, it's not good things. It's just human nature to do this. Thus, these three Assyrian uh, members of Sennacherib's royal court went back to their boss only being able to say, well, the message was delivered because they could offer nothing but speculation as to its impact because nobody said anything in response. Now, the last verse of chapter 18 says that the three men who represented King Hezekiah left their conference shaken and in deep anxiety and grief. That is the meaning of them tearing their clothes. This is literal. But the literal meaning of tearing of clothing was, is that it was a symbolic act of mourning. 
However, the rabbis do well in pointing out that if these three are of the character that we hope they are, the reason for their mourning is because they had heard the name of God blasphemed by Rav Shekay, and deep grief is certainly the appropriate response to that. For Rav Shekay to claim that he was Jehovah's agent, to compare the God of Israel to the gods of other nations, to compare Judah, which is God's kingdom on earth, to any other place or a nation on this planet, is blasphemy. Now remember that the next time you hear a fellow believer or a media pundit or a politician claim that modern day Israel is simply a geopolitical issue in our day. And that even handedness between Israel and Israel's enemies is what's called for. The Lord does not deal with the world with even hands. Without apology. His chosen people and His chosen land are shown favoritism above all others. Even though at times His chosen are severely chastised for their sins. Such a thought of God playing favorites infuriates people all around this world and coming from all walks of life. Even a large segment of the modern church does not accept that God shows favor to Israel and to His people. And by His people I mean both Israel and believers in Christ. Just understand that if you think in such a manner, you're in the same boat as Rav Shekay and as the king of Assyria. Well, with torn clothing, El Yakim, Shebna, and Yoach went to tell their king, King Hezekiah, the bad news. So let's see Hezekiah's response in chapter 19. Open your Bibles to chapter 19. Page 424 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. On hearing it, King Hiskiah tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of Adonai. And he sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the household, Shebna, the general secretary, and the leading Kohanim, the head priest, covered with sackcloth, to Yeshiyahu, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amotz. And they said to him, This is what Hezekiah says, Today is a day of trouble, rebuke, and disgrace. Children are ready to be born, but there's no strength to bring them to birth. Maybe Adonai your God will hear all the words of Rav Shekay, whom his master the king of Asher has sent to taunt the living God and he'll rebuke the message which Adonai your God has heard so pray for the remnant that is left and when King Hiskiah's servants came to Isaiah he said to them tell your master that this is what Adonai says don't be afraid of the words you heard the servants of the king of Assyria use to insult me. I will put a spirit in him that will make him hear a rumor and he'll return to his own land. Then I'll cause him to die by the sword in his own land. Ravshakeh returned and having heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish found him making war with Lidna. And on hearing it 
said that Tirka, the king of Ethiopia, was on his way to fight him. The king of Assyria sent messengers to Hezekiah, telling them, This is what you are to say to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by saying, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the power of the king of Asher. You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands. They have completely destroyed them. So how will yours be delivered? Having the gods of the nations have the gods of the nations delivered them? No. My ancestors destroyed them. Gozan, Haran, Ritzef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Amoth? The king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, of Hena, of Eva. Hiskeau took the letter from the messenger's hands and he read it. And then Hiskeau went up to the house of Adonai and spread it out before Adonai. And Hezekiah prayed as follows in the presence of Adonai. Adonai, God of Israel, who dwells above the cherubim, you alone are God of all the kingdoms on earth. You made heaven and earth. Turn your ear, Adonai, and hear. Open your eyes, Adonai, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib sent to taunt the living God. It is true, Adonai, that the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire. For those were non-gods, merely the product of people's hands, wood and stone. This is why they could destroy them. Now therefore, Adonai, our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms on earth will know that you are Adonai God, you only. Then Isaiah, the son of Amot, sent this message to Hezekiah. Adonai, the God of Israel, says, You prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and I have heard you. Here is Adonai's answer concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you. She laughs you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. Whom have you taunted and insulted? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? The Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you taunted Adonai. You said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the mountain heights, even in the far reaches of the Lebanon. I cut down its tall cedars and its best cypresses. I reached its remotest corners and its best forests. I dug wells in foreign lands. I drank the water. The soles of my soldiers' feet dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Haven't you heard? Long ago I made it. In antiquity I produced it. Now I'm making it happen. You are turning fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of power, are disheartened and ashamed, weak as grass, frail as plants, like grass on the rooftops, or grain scorched by the east wind. But I know where you sit, when you leave, when you enter, and when you rage against me. And because of your rage against me, because of your pride, that has reached my ears. I'm putting my hook in your nose, my bridle in your lips, and I'm going to make you return by the way on which you came. This will be the sign for you. This year you will eat the grain that grows of itself. The second year you will eat what grows from that. But in the third year you will sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Meanwhile, the remnant of the house of Judah that has escaped will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem, 
Those escaping will go out from Mount Zion. The zeal of Adonai Sevaot will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what Adonai says concerning the king of Assyria. He'll not come to this city. He won't even shoot an arrow there. He'll not confront it with a shield or erect earthworks against it. By the way he came, he'll return. He'll not come to this city, says Adonai, for I will defend this city and save it, both for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That night, the angel of Adonai went out and struck down 185,000 men in the camp of Assyria. Early the next morning, there they were, all of them, corpses, dead. So Sennacherib, king of Asher, left, and he went and returned to live in Nineveh. One day, as he was worshipping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, his sons, Adramelech and Sharetzer, struck him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. So his son, Esar Hadon, took his place as king. Well, when Hiskiel heard from his three representatives about this message from Rav Shekeh, the king responded by tearing his own clothes in mourning, and then he put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was usually used as the garment of a spouse who had lost their loved one to death. But here it was to show the enormity of Hezekiah's distress. It was the king showing an unusual humility before God. And it was designed to provoke God's mercy. But Hezekiah also responded to what lay before him in a way that we should all emulate. He inquired of Isaiah, God's prophet, what to do and what God had to say about it all. And in addition, verse 1 says he went to the temple to pray. Now the rabbis admit that it is not necessary to pray at the temple or for a Christian to pray at church, to go to a church to pray in order for one's prayers to be heard. However, in Hezekiah's case, for the king to humble himself and go to the temple to be near to God, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was there, faced with such a serious matter, well, this was the wise and the right thing to do in this case. Well, Hiskiah's message was sent to Isaiah with the three representatives who had met with the Assyrian delegation. And the message consisted of four elements. First, this was a day of distress. This was because the survival of the nation as a kingdom of God was at stake. Second, this was a day of rebuke. Hezekiah understood that part of what was happening to him and to Judah was due to past sin. But the other part was that Hezekiah was hoping that God would rebuke Assyria for their haughtiness against God's holiness. Third, this was a day of disgrace or sacrilege. The idea is that an enemy was emboldened at least partially, uh, because of Hezekiah submitting to Sennacherib's demand of ten tons of silver and a ton of gold, to the point they felt no fear of Israel's God. Such that they would come to his holy city, open
openly question God's power and threaten His people. And fourth, this was a day when Judah became as children ready to be born, but there is no strength to bring them forth. See, this was an expression that spoke of labor pain at its worst. At the moment that the baby is ready to emerge from the birth canal, but the mother is in such agony and so exhausted that there is great doubt that she can successfully expel that infant from her womb. The idea is that the baby and the mother probably would die in such a situation. And in verse 4, Hezekiah continues his plea by saying that only a remnant remains in Jerusalem. He is speaking of the fact that only a few of the northern tribes had escaped deportation at the hands of the Assyrians and that much of Judah had been conquered by these same Assyrians. Generally, all that remained now of the promised land was Jerusalem and its surrounding villages and towns. But this same verse also makes it clear for the reason for Hezekiah's distress and his donning of sackcloth when when the king speaks of the king of Assyria who sent Rav Shekeh to insult the living God. Isaiah responds, beginning in verse 5, with the reassuring, me- reassuring message, Al Tirah, do not fear. And then the context for God's perspective of the arrogant speech that Rav Shekeh delivered is set in the words, by which the attendants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Hezekiah and his three representatives, along with the rabbis who comment on this section, are surely right. It is God's holiness that is at stake above all else. Since the king of Assyria directly blasphemed the God of Israel, Israel's God is going to deal directly with Assyria's king. And God is going to instill in Sennacherib a ruach, a spirit, that will cause him to reconsider his invasion of, of Judah and instead return home to Assyria where he's going to die violently. This does not mean that God sent a spiritual being of some sort, be it good or evil. Rather, this is meant in the sense of an unction, a a, a thought that seems to overwhelm the king to the point he can't do other than to obey the thought. But once he obeys that thought, it's going to lead to his death. The scene suddenly changes from Hezekiah and Isaiah to the Assyrian viceroy, Rav Shekeh who, after delivering the message to King Hezekiah, is returning to his own king. But he finds out that King Sennacherib, and at least part of the Assyrian army, has left their siege on Lachish and moved on to Libna. And while uh, while at Libna, he got news that the king of Cush has moved north to attack his Assyrian forces. Now the king of Cush is actually referring to Egypt because at this time an Ethiopian, a Cushite, was Egypt's king. 
This Ethiopian's name was Tirhaka. Thus Tirhaka, king of Egypt, was leading his army against Assyria. Now what happens next? Reminds us so much of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And how no matter how severely the Lord devastated Egypt, how each time the Pharaoh would relent and beg for mercy and God would stop, the Pharaoh would turn right around and repeat his reckless blasphemy. He would provoke yet another round of divinely inspired catastrophes. So, in verses 9 through 13, Sennacherib digs his own grave just a little bit deeper. He repeats his blasphemy of the God of Israel. It can only be that the timing is that immediately upon the Lord telling Isaiah that he was going to put a spirit into Sennacherib that would ultimately result in his demise, he did it while Sennacherib was at Libna. Thus, for some reason that would be inexplicable outside of this overwhelming, not particularly rational thought that God sent to inhabit the king of Assyria's mind, he sends his delegation back to Jerusalem to place the same demands upon Hezekiah as if Hezekiah didn't already thoroughly understand Assyria's position from the first meeting. And what makes Sennacherib's actions all the more irrational is that the king of Assyria does that upon hearing that Tirhakah is rapidly approaching his Assyrian forces with bad intentions in mind. And once again he says that his Hezekiah ought to surrender immediately because Jehovah can't possibly save Judah. Oh yes, this is, this is the Pharaoh story all over again. But see, we need to recognize the God pattern. Because we're going to see it repeat in the end times. When we look all around us today, and we see the decisions that various world government leaders make, decisions that seem to be so illogical, some cases bordering on suicidal, we're bewildered. When we see world financial leaders and gurus borrow more money in the name of getting out of debt, and then suggest that everybody does the same, when we see banks and nations getting together to throw trillions of dollars to saving other bankrupt nations, made so from an incalculable folly that they have no intentions of changing, we're confused. But yet these secular humanists that form the elite intellectual set of all modern societies explain to us You see, while their decisions might seem to defy common sense and prudence, in fact, it's only because the non-elite, all of us, we just don't have the brain capacity to understand their brilliant solutions to the world's problems. Why do they think like they do? 
Why do they see their own irrational behavior as the height of wisdom? Look to the Pharaoh. Look to Sennacherib for the answer. But then, not too long from now, we hear of this scenario, which is going to sound very familiar to you when we're done reading. I want you to pick up your Bibles again and turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 692. Ezekiel chapter 38. The word of Adonai came to me, human being, turn your face towards Gog and the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I'm going to turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with all of your army and horses and horsemen, all completely equipped, a great horde, with breastplates and shields, all wielding swords. Paras, Ethiopia, and Put are with them, all with breastplates and helmets. Gomer, with all its troops. The house of uh, Togarma in the far reaches of the north, with all of his troops. Many peoples are with you. Prepare yourself. Get ready. You and all your crowd gathered around you and take charge of them. After many days have passed, you'll be mustered for service. In later years, you'll invade the land which has been brought back from the sword, gathered out of many peoples, the mountains of Israel. They have been lying in ruins for a long time. But now Israel has been extracted from the peoples, and all of them are living there securely. You will come up like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many other peoples with you. Adonai Elohim says, when that day comes, thoughts will well up in your mind. And you will devise a sinister scheme. You'll say, I'm going to invade this land of unwalled villages. I'll take it by surprise, these people who are at peace, living securely, all in places without walls or bars or gates. I'll seize the spoil and take the plunder. You will attack the former ruins that are now inhabited and come against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and other wealth and they're living in the central parts of the land. Sheva, Dedan, and all the leading merchants of Tarshish will ask you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold and livestock and other wealth to take much plunder? Therefore, human being prophesied, Tell Gog that Adonai Elohim says this, won't you be aware of it when my people Israel are living in security? You will choose just that time to come from your place in the far reaches of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them on horseback, a huge horde, a mighty army, and you will invade my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. This will be in the Akhirit Hayamim, the world to come. I will bring you against my land so that the Goyim, the Gentiles, will know me. When before their eyes, I am set apart as holy through you, Gog. Adonai Elohim says, I spoke of you long ago through my servants, the 
prophets of Israel. And back then they prophesied for many years that I would have you invade them. When that day comes, when Gog invades the land of Israel, says Adonai Elohim, my furious anger will boil up. In my jealousy, in my heated fury, I speak. When that day comes, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the wild beasts, all the reptiles creeping on the ground, every human being there in the land will tremble before me. Mountains will fall, cliffs crumble, every wall crash to the ground. I will summon a sword against him throughout all my mountains, says Adonai Elohim. Every man will wield his sword against his brother. I'll judge him with plague, with blood. I'll cause torrential rain to fall on him. His troops and the many peoples with him, along with huge hailstones, fire and sulfur. I will show my greatness and holiness, making myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am Adonai. Amazing, isn't it? Sounds exactly like what we've been reading about with Assyria and Judah, kings Hizkiah and Sennacherib. Now I told you last time that Ezekiel 38 and 2 Kings 18 and 19 mesh so thoroughly and obviously that the ancient rabbis deduced that Hezekiah must be symbolic of the Messiah and King Sennacherib the king of Magog. Now what they missed, of course, is that these passages of Ezekiel say it's only after Israel has been gathered together and brought back from far-flung places to the hills of Judea and Samaria, what the media calls the West Bank, that the War of Gog and Magog finally occurs. Notice, The hills of Samaria is just another name for the northern kingdom as populated by the ten tribes. They were conquered by the Assyrians at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign. And then the hills of Judea, Judah, would about 125 years later be conquered by the Babylonians. Then only after these two groups return would Magog come from the north and attack Israel. Also notice that in Ezekiel, God puts a spirit, an unction, an overpowering thought into the mind of the king of Magog. Hooks in the jaw that he would attack Israel. Just as he put a spirit, an unction, an overpowering thought into the mind of King Sennacherib in order that he react in a largely irrational way that would lead to his own destruction. And he did it supernaturally by putting irresistible thoughts that defy wisdom, common sense, or even self-preservation into the minds of these powerful and revered world leaders. So believers understand. All of this irrationality, all of this confusion that we see happening is but a playing out of God's patterns. Believers are the only ones capable 
of discerning what is happening. But only those believers who study and believe God's word will know about it. These government and finance leaders don't know God from a potato. Despite what a few of them might feign. Don't try to understand it, people. Don't try to understand it. Because it makes no sense. Even from an earthly perspective, it makes no sense. Rather, try to help others understand it all from a spiritual, heavenly perspective and recognize that what we're witnessing is God in action. Acting according to His ancient prophecies and promises, bringing the world ever closer to the end of history, but also to the goal of final redemption. Now we're going to close out today's lesson with this thought. Verse 14 says that Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands and he laid it out before the Lord. There are two important pieces of information here and we're only going to deal with the first one. It is that all responsibility for this second blasphemous rant from Sennacherib rests upon him. Rav Shakay could have ad-libbed to some degree or another, perhaps adding some of his own colorful adverbs and adjectives to King Sennacherib's intent at that first conference. But this time, the message came in the form of a written document from Sennacherib that Rav Shakay merely read to Hezekiah. Sennacherib alone as with Egypt's Pharaoh of the Exodus, was responsible. So he would be held personally accountable by the Lord for his attitude and his actions. We'll begin with the second important piece of information from verse 14 next time, and then also deal with Hezekiah's approach to God with it.